You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas alongside Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you and I took a bike ride last night yes, as we did. part of the pre-wedding festivities for our longtime friend, Sir Nigel Longstock. Yeah, it was a pleasant evening for a bike ride. I'd it was. Say. You know what? We lucked out. It looked like there might have been some thunderstorms, but uh, it was actually, as you said, downright pleasant. Not not too hot, not too cold. Just the the, the perfect evening for a, a 21-mile round-trip bike ride. Just a bunch of weirdos puzzling down to a brewery past a field of buffalo doing about the most Montana shit we could possibly do. Today, I feel like I need an inflatable donut for my seat. Yeah? I've got a little, little bit of saddle soreness going on. feel like I've been out riding the range. Okay. By which you mean a bicycle. Yes. Like a 10-speed bicycle. Yes. Feels like I've spent the, the season helping Pa bring the cattle in from, uh, from the range. Yeah, you are looking pretty rugged frontiersman. Fresh off his 10-speed bicycle. I'm just not used to it. That's all I'm saying. Bicycle down, enjoy a couple IPAs, then get back on the bicycle the way the pioneers intended. It just makes me wonder how uh, guys like Dave Doyle, big-time bike rider, like our friend Smokestack, big-time yeah. bike rider, these guys put in hundreds of miles. I assume your ass just gets used to it. Must. Must. Like you just get some kind of like a callus there, and you don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. I'm not used to it yet. Going to have to get out on the... Uh, on the velocipede a little bit more often. I don't know if you're going to do that often enough to get used to it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't see that in your future. That, that could be true. That might be true. Well, Ben, we're coming in off a hot UFC 239 fight card from Saturday night. Uh, lived up to the hype, I would say, and then some. Yeah. May end up going down as the best pay-per-view of the year. We got, as we are wont to do, a grip of listener mail. Good listener mail. We want to get into it as quickly as we can. We're going to uh, answer as many of the questions as we can during our normal listener mail section. And then we're going to shuffle some of the questions into the round format, the second half of the show, because we got some uh, some focused queries that I think will help guide our discussion. And it makes sense, right? Because we got a whole lot of living done in that paper. We sure did. And I appreciate the people who went back, watched our live watch party just to see our reactions to the Jorge Masvidal Ben Askren knockout. There's some screenshots floating around. Yeah. And it seems like I did not really realize it at the time, but it seems like we had the exact same reaction. Grabbing our heads like we like uh like Jesus Christ himself had just come back from the dead. Kind of the Joe Silva special like he used to do, like where you just instinctively grab onto the top of your skull like you were worried that this result is so shocking your mind might actually blow up. Literally you literally blow your mind yeah. if you don't hold it all together. Have you seen the Joe Rogan knockout reaction? I think he might have even commented on it once yes. they showed the replay. Where it looks like he's he's either trying to hold back children, like you're getting in, like the way your mom used to do, yes, she had to she, slam on the brakes in the car, yes. and she would throw her straight arm across your chest, like that was going to prevent you from going through the windshield after a 35 mile an hour crash. 
it's like it's like Rogan is trying to do that with his broadcast partners, or it's like he's trying to hold himself in time and space. I think it's the second one. Like yeah. he's worried that the knockout is just going to blow him off his axis. Yeah, he is reaching out for some kind of tether to the physical world. That's right, yes. Otherwise, this might send him spinning off into the abyss. So we got a lot of great stuff that we want to get into today. Before that, though, a special message out there for all the Roadhouse supporters. Oh, God damn it. Voting is razor close over at the co-main event podcast Patreon for the movie that we are going to watch for the third installment of the movie club. Right now, Ben, point break. 51% of the vote. Roadhouse, 49% of the vote. Well, that has narrowed since we last time We are so close to forcing this thing to some kind of tie break. Okay. I want all my Roadhouse constituents out there to get on the internet right now as they hear the sound of my voice and go to patreon.com slash co-main event and vote for Roadhouse in the head-to-head matchup with Point Break. Let's pull this off. Let's pull off the greatest upset in the history of the movie club. Okay. We can do it, people. Also, while they're there, they're not already signed up for the Patreon. They can do that, join the team, get access to a bunch of great stuff, such as the movie club, the live watch parties, the Wednesday live chat, the Friday power hour, a whole extra podcast each week. Tons of great stuff. All UFC you gotta do, 239 watch party was off the chain. We had Sir chain. Nigel Longstock in the house. That's right. You you drank a literal soda pop. I did. I brought a Coca-Cola. You drank a, what a wild man. Drank I know that Coca-Cola. I've said this before, but the best thing about not drinking soda pop is drinking soda pop. When you haven't had one in like six months, you open up a soda pop, you start drinking it. It tastes so weird, so fizzy, <laughs> yes, effervescent. Yeah. Anyway. Then I had trouble sleeping. Patreon.com slash co-main event. You can join the team. Here's what I'll suggest. If we do end up in a tie situation, since we're dealing with two movies here that are late 80s, early 90s, around the same kind of ouvre, both Patrick Swayze films, yeah. what about if we did a compare and contrast? Like what we about had to watch both of them? What about if we watched them both? Holy shit. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. I thought you were going to say we put our forearms together and light a cigarette between them and the first guy to pull away loses. <laughs> that's what I thought you were going to say. That's really what, that's the first place your mind went. Really? I was like, here, I have an idea. And you were like, finally, he's going to suggest the cigarette forearm thing that I've been thinking about. Yeah, but we could watch both movies. I mean, whatever. <laughs> as long as my roadhouse peeps get on the internet and vote for it. We're so close. I'm going to stick to this forearm cigarette idea in the back pocket. Maybe some other... Some other situation, I'm sure, will arise. Remember, we got music again this week from our guy, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeat7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. I was just going to ask that if that was beats with a Z. But it is the number seven, the numeral seven, beats seven. Okay. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, depending on who you ask and maybe how many tens of millions you stand to make on it, John Jones either almost lost his UFC light heavyweight title on Saturday or he breezed through Tiago Santos in a cakewalk and anybody who thought different is a dummy who should never watch another MMA fight. And in round number two, in between wild punching flurries and dope head kick knockouts, Amanda Nunes is just going to quietly, dominantly be the best we've ever seen by a really wide margin. But what now for the Lioness? And in round number three, Jorge Masvidal's KO of Ben Askren was one of the great moments in all of MMA history. 
But his comments about Whole Foods were out of line, bro. Whole Foods should be an agreed-upon neutral zone. We all need safe access to Whole Foods. That's just a human rights issue. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. A lot of good listener mail this week. First piece of listener mail comes to us from Mr. Burrito Bowl. Okay. He writes, what's the deal with Luke Rockhold? His facial expression always makes it look like his parents are making him be there. And it's all just very much beneath him to have to share the cage with whoever he's fighting. He seems to get noticeably annoyed when his opponents have the gall to hit him back. Does he really feel this way? Or does he just suffer from resting disdain face? Is this just the way beautiful people are? Discourse, please. Ben, not only did Luke Rockhold catch a hot one over the weekend at UFC 239, knocked pretty much out cold by your boy Jan Blagovitz. But I think it's safe to say that maybe we got a little carried away. We did? Forecasting Luke Rockhold's, uh, how he would do at light heavyweight. Yeah, we did. Do we you mean were, specifically you, though? We recorded an entire podcast about it on Friday, okay. of which you were perfectly willing to participate in. So yeah, we did. We got a little hyped we by his weigh-in. Let's say that. We both got a little hyped by the weigh-in. Okay. You were holding your school books in front of your lap. After the way, <laughs> I understand what Mr. Brito Bull is saying here about the general. I'm not even sure it's just the face, the kind of air with which Luke Rockhold carries himself in MMA. It is a little bit like, I can't believe I have to deal with you people sometimes. And you so, sweat hogs, all the yes, sweat hogs all, out it, here in, all, in uh, Minneapolis. Some of that is maybe just the way beautiful people are. You know, like we talked about it on during the live watch party. Like that, at times, he reminds you of the, the John Hamm character when he showed up in uh, 30 Rock, like just treated a different way because he looks like Luke Rockhold. But I felt kind of bad watching this one, man, because clearly Luke Rockhold really does want to be here. We we wondered if he had the fire burning in the heart at age 34 after all the stuff he's been through coming back, hasn't competed super regularly in the last couple of years. And yet clearly if you got to go out there with a thing on your shin to cover up the damn staph infection stuff you had, you have a modeling career and you're putting it to the side for a second so you can go in there and fight another man in a cage, you must want to be there. Yeah, and he's really good. Like, let's not lose sight of that fact. He was the Strike Force middleweight champion. He had a cup of coffee with the UFC middleweight title. Like, Luke Rockhold has been better than good. He's been very, very good in his MMA career. He gets a lot of attention for his looks. And so I think that it's... You know, if you're going to accept the good stuff with that, you probably have to accept the uh, accusations of resting disdain face also. I don't necessarily think that's unfair. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there are a lot of valid questions about Luke Rockhold now in the wake of this knockout to Jan Blagovitz. And man, what a what a tough deal for Luke Rockhold to kind of go into the weekend hyped about light heavyweight to be talking all this junk like middleweight is deeper. There's more skilled fighters there. Uh, talking about how you want to jump the line and fight John Jones next after you get this speed bump out of the way and end the weekend with the UFC president calling for your retirement. That's just a bad beat, man. That's just a, a cruel twist of fate. Okay, about Dana White saying he should retire. I didn't necessarily get the sense that it was Dana White saying, Luke Rockhold, retire, bitch. Like, you suck. It wasn't like that. It was... And I understand where Dana White's coming from on this one because I often feel the same way. Whenever I see somebody where they have a career outside of this that yeah. they could go do and it's a potentially lucrative one and one that they would need to seize 
in the moment in order to take advantage of it. Modeling is not the kind of thing where your career in it is going to get better as you get older and get punched in the face more. Yeah. If you're going to do that, you should probably do it now. Right. And it's not the kind of career where you want to go out and get your jaw broken right. multiple the, times. Getting your jaw broken is not going to help your modeling career. I don't know anything about modeling, and I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground saying that. And Dana White, I think, is familiar enough with a fight game when he sees somebody like that and he realizes, like, okay, this person doesn't have to do this. They could do something else. And string of knockout losses, your path to one title in a division was blocked, your path... Here, if not blocked permanently, at least the road got a lot longer. We were talking about Luke Rockhold's ability to go out there, maybe win a fight against Jan Blachowicz, jump the line. Yeah, I'm skipping a jump from John Jones. And now you're a little further back from that. Plus your jaw's broken, so that's going to be six weeks of having your jaw wired shut probably. And so I understand that... that and in a way, I love his comments too where he was like, you know how everybody likes to say they're a model? I'm sure everybody's a model. You're a model. I'm a model. This guy is really a model, which... That's, that's who Dana White knows, I guess, is people, like everybody's a model. It tells us a lot about who Dana White is hanging out with. <laughs> yes, yeah. Right? Because I don't feel like the people I know, like everybody's claiming to be a model. Yeah, when yeah. was the last time someone in your circle was like, yeah, I know, you know, I do some modeling on the side. Yeah. Dana White is out here. Yeah, everybody. Oh, I'm so sick of people coming up to me telling, their, yeah. telling me they're models. You can't sit down and have a cocktail with a table full of people without half of them being models. But I understand the point that he's making about Luke Rockhold. And yeah, if you... If you don't really, really super want to be here, now's the time to think about doing something else. Yeah. Uh, I, I wrote a thing about this. If you this. can live without it, basically. Sure. Is what I'm yeah. I wrote a thing about this on The Athletic after UFC 239. But after the fight, I kind of felt like we had asked a lot of the wrong questions about Luke Rockhold's move to light heavyweight. He came into this fight as the betting favorite, right? Slight favorite yes. over Jan Blagovic. We were talking about, oh, he's six foot three, he's, he's got so much range, he's got so much reach, he's athletic, he's got this kicking game that could help him. Uh, never once did I at least stop to ask the question, what's going to happen when Jan Blagovic punches him right in his damn face? I mean, I asked the question on the power hour, how is Chin going to hold up? Because... You know, he had been knocked out a couple times at middleweight and then... All four of his previous losses. The the power that you're going to face at light heavyweight is going to be a little greater. I made this exact point, so let's not... It's not gloss over. I feel like we got a little too excited. Here we go. We're talking about his physical dimensions. It's always we who fuck up. It's never... Never we who are right. You know what I've noticed is that you are real, you're adamant about not being lumped in with any mistakes being made. Just adamant about not being lumped in with you. Anyway, but we got a little carried away here. The point is, I mean, actually, let's get to this next question here because I think this yeah. dovetails nicely with this the question about Luke Rockhold's question ability Question from Danny shot. Green. Danny Green writes, what are your thoughts on Luke Rockhold getting kicked and seriously wobbled after the round one bell? Could this have contributed to him being KO'd two and a half minutes later? Why isn't there consideration for a hurt fighter in this situation, say up to five minutes to recover? I felt the same about Aldo Mendez, too, when Chad Mendez was dropped with two punches after the round one bell. He never looked the same after that and went on to lose. I'm sure there are plenty of examples of this indefensible aspect of Dundasso. It's basically getting the chance to flash KO your opponent with their guard completely down. Discourse, if you would. Uh, This was a close one. Yeah. As I watched it live, I was like, that did look late. And then to hear a uh, referee, was a Herb Dean yep. in this fight, uh, explain to the ringside officials that Blagovitz initiated the kick before or during the bell. Which I think is accurate. I think he said that, he, that the kick began at the same time as the horn. And 
Yeah, it definitely lands after that, but I mean, he starts in motion the to go into that kick before the horn ends to send the round. So, yeah, I, I understand the the point being made, especially because we said like Holly Holm, or as she's known in this program, Holly Holmes. That fight she had with Jermaine Duran to me, where she got hit a couple times after yeah. the horn, and it was like that does seem to affect you going forward. I, how can it not? Right, you get caught with a good shot there right after the the like at the end of the round. You get 60 seconds, basically, until the next round starts. You could definitely still be wobbled, especially after getting kicked in the damn head. Like, that one really clipped him right on the top of the head there. So, I understand that, but if it's not... You have to call it a foul if you're going to give the guy time to recover. And I don't think you can call that one a foul. Right. That's the thing. Once you don't call it a foul, then I don't think you can give the guy any special consideration to recover. Right. And, I mean, like, it seemed like they took some time, like, Herb really quickly assessed it and we could hear him going over to talk to somebody from the commission basically and telling him that the kick was initiated at the same time as the horn so it's not considered a late blow and yet if you were a dundasso minded fighter maybe that is something you think about if you you hear that clapper you get the 10 second thing going down in your head and you're like okay let me try to get to the very end here and see if i can launch one but got to be hard to hard to time yes unless you're training for it Unless you've got that clock in your head. Right. Counting down. And also, if you're Luke Rockhold, you should be still fighting and paying attention until Herb Dean is in there and you're sure that the round is over. Next question this week comes to us from Del Griffith, who writes, Michael Chiesa looked awesome. What is his ceiling at 170? Also, Diego San- Sanchez in general, WTF. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, Michael Chiesa, who is a guy that we don't talk a lot about kind of in the middleweight rat race, probably essentially because he just moved up a couple of fights ago. But at this point, he's got the second... Yeah, I'm sorry, welterweight. Second round submission over Carlos Condit. Not too shabby. Where he did that one arm He did a weird, crazy, hyper-painful-looking armbar on Carlos Condit. He goes out at UFC 239, pretty much roughnecks Diego Sanchez over three rounds. Uh, 30-26 across the board, unanimous decision win for Michael Chiesa. Just looks enormous at 170 pounds, which is amazing considering he moved up from 155. I'm interested to see what Michael Chiesa does next. I think that these are two really, really good wins to start out his welterweight career, even though clearly he beat maybe not the greatest version of Diego Sanchez, not Diego Sanchez in his prime. I still think it's a nice win. And I would like to see Michael Chiesa take on you know, a, a, a current name, someone circling around the, the top 10 in his next welterweight fight. Yeah, I'd be interested in that, too. In this one, looked like fighters in two different weight classes. For sure. And it's two guys who have kind of bounced around. Diego Sanchez right. has bounced around, but at the same time, I did not expect Michael Chiesa to look quite, to have quite the size advantage that he did. Because yeah. it was huge. I liked his comments afterwards where he talked about how much pressure it is to fight a guy who has, as he put it, a fruitcake in his corner, where he has the lone corner man who clearly does not know anything about mixed martial arts and is a topic of conversation heading into the fight. And he, he said, basically, you can't lose to that guy in that situation. People will mock you. It will be, I think he said, career suicide to lose, not to Diego Sanchez, but to lose to Diego Sanchez in this fight where he has this weirdo corner man situation going on and everybody's paying attention to it. You can't lose to that version of Diego Sanchez. And he also was like, Diego Sanchez is a good enough fighter and a serious enough fighter that he deserves an actual team, an actual team of trainers going in there. When I think about what's going on with Diego, though, 
as, as far as the WTF portion of this question. Right. And I know we're all reaching this point where we're like, this is starting to get uncomfortable. And yet I can also see Diego doing a thing where like he could bounce back and win one here or there, you know, lose one or two, win one. Plus, I just don't see him calling it quits. I don't see him having that in him to just be like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. I think this is going to go on for a while. Like, If not in the UFC, then somewhere else. I think that he's just going to keep asking for fights as long as you're willing to give them to him. And if you decide you're not willing to play that game anymore, he'll go somewhere else. I agree. I don't think Diego Sanchez will walk away until uh, he is absolutely forced to do so. The MMA world at large was not kind to Diego Sanchez's quarterman. With good reason, I yeah. think. You know, he, he he got kind of a weirdo interview headed into UFC 239. And from what we saw on the live broadcast, the corner advice was... Breathing. There's a lot of breathing. Yeah. It was scant at best. And then uh, headed into the third, I believe he said he wanted to see that Tyson. And that he needed 100% of effort from Diego Sanchez. Yeah. He also said that there's, there's no more playing by the time we go into the third round. We're done playing. Yeah, we're done playing there after going down... Two, two lopsided rounds to Michael Chiesa. No more time for playing. You know what the thing that it made me wonder about was what the preparations were like for Diego Sanchez for this fight. Because, you know, obviously we saw the corner advice. We saw the, the, how it played out in the cage. Just makes me wonder, like, what, what kind of drills was he getting? What kind of coaching was he getting leading up to this fight with Michael Chiesa? I don't know I that it, it was... would have helped. I don't know that, like... He could have had the best camp in the world, and maybe it wouldn't have helped against Michael Chiesa. But at the same time, I do find myself wondering uh, how prepared he was technically to go in there and fight Michael Chiesa because he just got overwhelmed. Right, but he got overwhelmed no matter what he tried to do. Right. Because it was like he went out there and immediately tried to take Michael Chiesa down, and Michael Chiesa was like, yes, let's do that. And immediately kind of took control over that aspect of the fight. And so it was like... That's what Diego Sanchez has been trying to do in most of his fights recently. And if you can go out out there and do that and you end up playing into the other guy's hands, well, then what's plan B? I don't know. Yeah, I just wonder, like, if you, let's say you're a coach at Jackson Winklejohn and you're watching this fight. I wonder if you have some remorse or some, like, uh, feelings like you could have helped Diego Sanchez out with his approach in some way. Because, like, clearly what he was doing was not working. And I don't know if there are intricacies in the game that could have been adjusted to maybe give him a little bit more success against Michael Chiesa, but he clearly just got obliterated on the scorecards. Was breathing, though. Into he was the nose, breathing out the correctly, mouth. as far as we could tell. Yeah. So he had that part down. Next question as we comes to us from Giles Mooney, who writes, I'm sure you will dedicate the three rounds to the main card of UFC 239, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the happenings on the prelims. We had great performances from three young up-and-coming fighters. 21-year-old uh, Edmer, Ed, Edmund Shabazian looked ferocious against Jack Marshman. 24-year-old Song Yadong uh, starched Alejandro Perez. And 25-year-old Arnold Allen outworked former Capital G guy Giblert Melendez over 15 minutes. What performance did you think was the best and who do you think has the best prospects in their respective division? Uh, I feel like Shabazian, Shabazian has something special and really wanted to, to see how his career develops. Although I worry about the depth of coaching and strategic game planning he will receive under the tutelage of Edmund Targaryen, or as we like to call him here on the podcast, Edmund Targaryens. The Dragon King. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of good performances on the prelims here, as well as a lot of uh, Yadong Song puns on Twitter. After he wins by first round, does somebody have to explain that to him? Seconds? You know, I mean, he speaks a little bit of English, but does somebody 
at some point have the unenviable job of being like, see, what's happening is fans are, keep making these, what seem to you probably like just normal sentences with your name in them, but they're actually about penises. Yeah. Uh, like, does somebody have to sit down and have that conversation? I don't want to be that person who has to have that conversation. This, this was the first fight on the televised prelims. All I know is that I, I opened my Twitter account while I was fixing my family dinner, and I saw nothing. Just like a string of Yadong jokes. And I was like, oh, Yadong song must have won. Yeah. Must have done something impressive. <laughs> I mean, just imagine finding out I'm competing in this sport I'm really good at, and the main market for it is in a country where just by kind of pure coincidence, my name sounds like a dick. Yeah. I mean, it could be worse, I guess, but it's still, you're like, damn it. That's rotten luck. I think all three of these performances were super impressive. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Edmund uh, Shabazian was the, the biggest favorite on the card. So the fact that he went out and, and tapped out Jack Marshman in a minute and 12 seconds is not necessarily unexpected. Yeah. Although you do want to see more from the guy. I think he's 21 years old. He's managed by Ronda Rousey, which is an interesting way to go about your career. But at the uh-huh. same time, maybe not a poor one. I don't know. Maybe Ronda Rousey has the stroke to uh, to get this guy a bunch of Jack Marshman-style matchups. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Uh, it's hard to uh, to pick anything besides the knockout by Yadong. Right. As I, far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, that was a vicious knockout. And yeah. he, he was throwing hard from the beginning of that fight. And from what everybody says, like, he, the guy can grapple too. So it's not like he's just a one-trick pony. Plus, Bantamweight has some interesting stuff going on right now. And you go out there and have a couple good performances, things could get serious in a hurry for you at Bantamweight. So I am excited to see where that goes. And you know the UFC would love it if they ended up having a... Chinese knockout artist on their hands as they try to expand more into China. That would be the kind of thing that they would want to nurture. So there's some hope for the future there. Although Arnold Allen looked really good against Gil- Gilbert Melendez, who definitely, that's an experienced fighter. He's kind of on the downward end of the, the trajectory here. He looked about 100 years old standing next to fresh-faced young Arnold Allen. Yeah. But he just couldn't keep up with the speed. Uh, Arnold Allen mixing it up really well against him. Went out there against, you know, like an experienced veteran fighter and looked awesome. Yeah, in many ways, as I've said before, I feel like a, you know, a lopsided 15-minute unanimous decision win is almost the most impressive thing you can do if you're trying to make your name as a fighter. Obviously, it's not going to get you like a post-fight bonus, probably. It's probably not going to get you on any highlight reels. But we got to see a lot yeah. of Arnold Allen against a high-level competitor in Gilbert Melendez. So it's not like he went out and tapped a guy out in a minute and change or knocked a guy out in a couple of minutes. We got to see him uh, really show his skills over a long period of time. So while the knockout by Yadong Song might have been the most impressive thing, I feel like the most complete performance, obviously, is Arnold Allen. And now I believe he's... 6-0 and in the UFC, 15-1 and overall, uh, 25 years old, obviously from, from England. So a star from the United Kingdom coming along maybe just when we need one after Michael Bisping has pieced out of the sport. Uh, as we talked about during the fight party, though, hard to be a guy named Arnold Allen in today's UFC uh, environment. Yeah. You either got to be really, really, really good, a la Jonathan Jones, so people remember <laughs> your name, or you got to you know, wear a feather boa or a pet snake around your neck. I think one of the ideas you floated was an eye patch. Yeah, be the guy who has the eye patch, who wears his eye patch to all the uh, pre-fight media engagements. And then when it's fight time, just take it off and your eye's fine. 
You were, it's not like you were wearing it for any reason. It's just your eye patch that you like to roll around in. And you just entertain no follow-up questions to the eye patch. That's right. You, I won't discuss the eye patch. Is what you say in every interview. The the very that's beginning. the parameter. Every the one press stipulation yeah. for every media that you do. If you're Arnold Allen. Well, then you add an air of mystery about it. I like, agree. What's the deal with the eye? He won't you even talk a, about it. You need an air of something if you're Arnold Allen. True. Because you just won six fights in a row in the octagon. How about like a sick tattoo? Like across your chest. That's not going to differentiate you from anyone else in the octagon who all have sick tattoos across their chest. Okay. You think you got to go forehead? Yes. There you go. Spider web across the whole face. Then we'll remember who Arnold Allen is. All right. Was. Yeah. And I have a feeling then you might, uh, might end up with a sweet nickname. Last question this week comes to us from Stuart Wade, who writes, Two fights, two championship bouts, two submissions, four knockouts. A fun and memorable night of fights that included broken records, broken faces, and broken hopes and dreams. But was US, UFC 239 really worth the $80 it would cost for the pay-per-view plus ESPN account? I'll take my answer off the air. Okay, so are we asking, if you weren't already convinced for ESPN plus, was this the one that gets you in the door? So 80 bucks would be your pay-per-view plus your monthly subscription if that was the only event that you watched, right? Is that what we're doing here? Is that how you get to 80 bucks? Because you can't just add the subscription onto the price of UFC 239 if you're also watching the ESPN Plus events, right? Yeah. You're getting more bang for your buck than, than that. I think that the 80 bucks would be if you signed on for, like, a, like if you, because if you sign up for like a year, of ESPN Plus right up front, then you get a discounted pay-per-view. Okay. So I think that's how you get to the 80 bucks. But you're right that then after that, you have ESPN Plus. So you can watch a whole lot of other, not just UFC content, but... Snooker? <laughs> cornhole? Championship level cornhole? Championship level. Not yeah. just, not not just not the just regional uh, circuit. Ham and Eggers out here. <laughs> yes. The top class. You know what I noticed the other day? I, I caught a few minutes of cornhole on TV one of the guys was throwing cornhole, and he was holding in his hand like a like a water bottle. And then I realized the reason he's doing it is because all the time when he practices cornhole, he's holding a drink. And that's just how he's gotten used to doing it. He's got to have the counterbalance correct. He, he's got to... Well, shit. There goes our live video stream. But he's got to compete the way he practices. And the way he practices is probably with a beer in his hand. So that's something to think about. But yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying there is if you were asking me, is $80 plus a year's subscription to ESPN Plus where you have access to a whole bunch of stuff, including a bunch more UFC stuff, and then also access to this pay-per-view, is it worth it? I kind of say yeah, because that was a really good pay-per-view. If you this was the one you jumped in on and this was the one where you got your discounted pay-per-view, you chose well, I guess, because this was one of the better pay-per-views we've seen this year. Yeah, I feel like if you are at all interested in the sport of mixed martial arts to the point where you are willing to pay money to watch it at this point, UFC 239 gave you your money's worth. Like, I don't know that you can make the case that it did not. If you came away from UFC 239 feeling like you didn't get your money's worth, then maybe that is a sign that you are not all that amenable to paying for pay-per-views these days. Which, if that's the way a fan feels in 2019... I kind of feel you yeah. a little bit. Catch you down at Buffalo Wild Wings. But even those of us who who are oftentimes ground to the nub by the hard charge in UFC live schedule, this one was dope. Yeah, it was dope. 
That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And the best news is, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As of right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, John Jones did not sprint through Tiago Santos the way we all thought he might in the main event of UFC 239. He does walk away with the victory, albeit via split decision, over the long-shot Brazilian underdog here in what was a compelling fight, but kind of a weird fight in a lot of different ways. Tiago Santos appeared to get injured uh in the middle of the fight early on in the fight early on early round two uh soldiered on through that injury though we'll never know how effective he could have been if he had been out there at 100 percent john jones clearly came in with a game plan to sort of pick his spots and maybe take take tiago santos apart over time not necessarily sure exactly how effective that was although i guess you can't argue with the results as he retains his light heavyweight championship let's talk first about the result I don't know that there was a tremendous amount of controversy about whether or not this fight was close, but then your UFC president came out after it was over and basically said, you're a dummy. If you didn't think that John Jones clearly won this fight and that you should never judge a fight again ever in the history of time. How did you see this? I know that you watched it a couple of times. I know that you wrote a column about it over on The Athletic. Did you walk away from the UFC 239 main event thinking this was a close damn fight that really could have gone either way? Well, upon initial viewing, as people who join us on a live watch party will know, I think a lot of it was the shock of being like, wait a minute, John Jones is losing rounds here. And he is not winning rounds by a whole lot. So it was just like you were expecting to see a one-sided domination. And then when you don't see it, the shock of that, I think, makes it seem even closer than it already seemed. And I still think that is a pretty close fight. The To me, the thing that I came away with after going back and watching it and trying to see, like, okay, which one of these is a clear win for Santos and which one is a clear win for John Jones? Round one, I think, goes to Santos. And I don't see a way to argue. I mean, there's not a whole lot that happens in that round except both guys trading leg kicks. Santos appears to be, have the more effective leg kicks that yeah. John Jones definitely seems to be feeling them more. And he knocks out John Jones's mouthpiece with punches at one point. So every judge scores that one 10-9 Santos. And then after that, the only round that I think is super clear that you can't really argue is round three. And that's where John Jones comes on kind of hard. And at the end of that one, you're going, okay, that's definitely John Jones's round. And every, every judge scored that one, 10-9 for John Jones. Other than that, the judges didn't agree all the way across the board on any other round. So that tells you that's got to be a pretty close fight just because the scores were all over the place. And then even when you look at the, the striking stats, it's like John Jones is landing more, but it's not like a ton more. It's like he's landing 11 significant strikes and Tiago Santos is landing eight or nine. And Tiago Santos is throwing a whole lot more. He's doing more. If you're just watching the fight and you're, you don't have the stats in front of you, what you're seeing is that Tiago Santos is pushing this fight a little more. And John Jones, it seems like 
he was content to try to figure out as little as he could do to win yeah. and stick with it. Like at times it seemed like he was aiming for a ceasefire because he would just get Tiago Santos backed up against the fence and he'd throw out a kick at his legs. He'd throw out kind of a front kick at his body. Something like he just was using a broomstick to just poke the guy and be like, okay, if you stay there, if you just stay there and you don't come forward, we can be friends. Everything can be fine. If you come forward, then I'm going to have to do something else about it. But I really just want us to reach a cessation of hostilities. And it was really surprising because I think we all went into this thinking, John Jones is going to whip this dude's ass. Yeah, it was weird in the sense that I, I didn't get a lot of urgency from John Jones. Right. Really at no time during no. the fight. Even in the fifth round when you thought, okay, Jones needs to have a big fifth round here and kind of take this one away. Kind of like what he did against Alexander Gustafson. He didn't really turn in that kind of a performance. It just continued to be this sort of just like listless, uh, not ineffective, but not altogether uh, impressive kind of like cruise control fight where it looked like, again, I'm speculating here, but it kind of seemed like John Jones came into this fight with a game plan of let's try to stay away from Tiago Santos's power because that's basically the only way he can beat you. And eventually you will just pick this guy apart and your John Jonesness will take over, and at some point you will either win a lopsided decision or you will figure out a way to craft a stoppage. But at the same time, like I don't necessarily know that that worked the way that maybe Jones and, and his coaches thought that it would. And in that regard, I thought it was a very strange performance for John Jones. At the same time, I'm you know aside from those leg kicks, which clearly did hurt and limit John Jones's mobility. Uh, you know, Tiago Santos landed some strikes, but it seemed like Jones was pretty good at just barely avoiding that the offense. Like when Tiago Santos yeah. would explode, it seemed like Jones was uh, slipping and rolling away from the punches and just kind of staying out of range. Yeah, he but again, not get like, hit with much clean. Yeah, but again, like that's not that might be really impressive if you're John Jones. Like if you're John Jones, you're thinking, oh man, I'm doing awesome. Like this guy keeps trying to hit me and he just can't do it. But like from the outside looking in, that's not a. a like a, an overwhelming strategy right. by I any mean, stretch. Of and John advantage. Jones himself threw very few punches. I don't know if, you know if he really cleanly landed a single punch. Like he was doing a lot of kicks. He would throw a couple of elbows at the head in close. He grazed Thiago Santos at the hairline with one of those elbows that cut him open. But just throwing almost no punches in, in the fight himself. And when you think about going into that fifth round, if you look at the scorecards, heading into the fifth round, he was down three rounds to one on one scorecard. He was up three rounds to one on another scorecard. And the third scorecard had it even, 2-2. Two, two. Yeah. So if you go into that fifth round and you let it be too close and you lose the fifth round on one of, that, one of those vital scorecards, you go home without your title. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah. And he did not fight like he was like, okay, time to close the show. Time to leave no doubt in anybody's mind. It was the fifth round... Looked very much like the fourth and the second rounds. It yeah. just he was not doing a whole lot. It was a lot of standing there and looking at Tiago Santos, trying to freeze him up basically, but never really turning up his own offense a whole lot. And by the end of it, he seemed so sure that he had it. He spent the last ten seconds of the round, which normally in a close round, that's when you want to throw a bunch of flurries and really convince the judges that it's your round. And he jogged away from Tiago Santos, like just trying to kill the clock a little bit. He was so sure that he had it won. It made me wonder, like. Is he so convinced of his own greatness that he's just not even seeing the same things that we're seeing yeah. out there? Well, this is one question that I wanted to ask. I think that clearly the power of Tiago Santos had something to do with Jones's strategy. But I also wonder if what we are seeing 
is kind of like the development, not necessarily of a new John Jones, but of a John Jones who is so comfortable now in his status as the greatest pound for pound MMA fighter on the planet, the best 205 pounder we've ever seen. Not only is he like so comfortable with his status therein, but also like feeling like he is really, really good. Yeah. And he's getting really, really good. He's getting even better than he was before. I wonder if what we are seeing is a product of that evolution in a weird way. Like he's so confident in his skills that he is just kind of going out there and letting things develop in front of him and taking it as it comes, which kind of leads to a lack of urgency. But I wonder if the, like one of the Genesis points of that strategy is just sort of like, I'm so good and I'm so well-rounded that like I've matured almost to the point where I don't have this urgency anymore. Right. But uh, I don't know if you feel like you want your credit from fans or from the UFC or whoever, don't you feel like everything tells you in MMA, if you go out there and finish people, then you really get your respect. Yeah, but and, you know who you're talking about here, right? right? sure. Like, but especially in this fight where Tiago Santos is on one leg for most of it, especially down the stretch there, you can see there are times where he is having some success coming forward and throwing punches, and he would like to do more of it, and he kind of can't. Because anytime he tries to really explode off of that leg, he almost stumbles and falls down. Just right. Like, there are times where he's trying to do a few things, and you can tell he just can't physically do it. And if you're John Jones and you see that, and he definitely saw that because he's kicking that leg some a little bit, like that's when everybody else is going, okay, hey, if you just crank it up a little bit here, you can put this guy away. Yeah. Especially the idea that he would not try to take him down just because he wanted to show that he could stand with him. And it's like, you're not making the points you think you're making in a fight like this. Like people want to see you go out there and show that you are not just a little bit better than all these other contenders, that you are a lot better because you're like the greatest ever. Yeah. And when you're fighting like this, like you're trying to do just enough. And that I don't think impresses people, even if you're doing just enough in the other guy's area. Afterwards, he kept saying over and over again, like this guy has a black belt in Muay Thai. And it's like, man, stop saying that. That does not sound as cool as you think it sounds. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. But at the same time, I do wonder if like it is because he's so comfortable and confident, almost like, you know, like if John Jones wrote a bunch of really short and exciting novels and then he decided okay, I'm into that, this alternate universe already. And then he decided that he was such a good writer that he was going to write like a 600 page epic and people would read it and be like, it's good, I guess, but it's not as cool as the early ones. I wonder if it's the same kind of evolution sort of where like everyone around him is being like, just be you, John, just like let it happen. And eventually like the, your essential John Jonesness will win you this fight. Are you saying that like the John Jones is like a fighting version of Dennis Johnson and everybody's standing around going, just write Jesus' son part two, man. We were into that. But he's not. He's writing, you know, nobody move or whatever. Tree of smoke. Tree of, yes, she's writing tree of smoke. Which now. won like the National Book Award. So there your analogy just kind of fell apart. Yeah, but nobody read it. That's true. Uh, okay, I do want to ask this question from Marcus McGahee who writes, I'm beginning, beginning to suspect, I'm beginning to suspect that John Jones' greatest weapon at this point in time is just his aura of invincibility. Bearing that premise in mind, do you suppose that Santos's success will pay dividends for future contenders? Okay, I think there's something to that in some of those fights because people get in there with him and his size and his ability in all areas. I think once they get a couple rounds in, they do start to get a little bit like, ah, well, shit. 
I'm out of ideas. What do I do here? And they kind of just want to survive. They want to go the distance with John Jones to say they did or yeah. try to keep it close. And I do think maybe that affects them in ways that it wouldn't affect them against other people where they're going out there thinking like, I'm the man in this fight and I'm going to take it to this guy. And against John Jones, I can see how that'd be a little scarier, especially just because he is so good at so many different things and he's so big for the division. You're thinking, where do I win this fight? Like, where do I have the advantage over John Jones? So I, I think that that plays some role into it. But I also think that when you see some, like Daniel Cormier, where it's like, okay, he's been in there with John Jones once, and then he goes in there the second time, and it's like, the more John Jones gets a look at you, the more John Jones can can really hurt you, I think. Yeah. I also wonder, though, like what the scorecards in a fight would have looked like if we didn't already come from the preconceived notion that John Jones was going to win this fight. Right. Like yeah. if this was fighter A versus fighter B, I wonder if, if things would have turned out a little bit differently. But I think that goes both ways because like we were when we were watching it after the end of round one and we were like, holy shit, did Tiago Santos actually win that round? I yeah. think he did. I think he won that round. And you're right that that's if it were just fighter A versus fighter B. It would be a quick snap judgment where you're like, that guy won that round. It's yeah. not a big deal. But then the other part of it is like when you don't absolutely demolish somebody, I still think if we did a fighter A versus fighter B breakdown of this fight, John Jones wins three rounds to two. But and normally that'd be good enough. But when you're John Jones and people expect you to be so far ahead of everybody, it looks closer than it is if, if you just win three rounds to two. Maybe, but I think also at the end of the day, the judges are like, who won that round? I don't know. I guess I'll give it to John Jones since <laughs> yeah. we all know he's going to win this anyway. Yeah. Uh, I came away from this fight a little bit less. I don't know that I was confident about seeing John Jones at heavyweight before, but I definitely wanted to see him at heavyweight. I still want to see him at heavyweight. And I think obviously one of the compelling things about that is seeing how he would behave in fights against bigger, more powerful people. And the extent to which Tiago Santos's power... I don't want to say flummoxed John Jones because I don't necessarily think he looked flummoxed, but it also looked like it just kind of shut him down in a it lot of like ways. Looked like he was thinking about it a he lot. He was thinking about it a lot, and he never really got the Ferrari out of the garage because of it. Uh, it made me wonder differently about how he would go, how he would do it heavyweight. You like think if you're out Steve there with Franny and Ganu, like what's John Jones going to do opposite that guy? Man, is he just, is it going to be the same kind of performance, or would John Jones in a weird way? feel a ton more urgency at heavyweight. I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I would like the UFC to pay up so we could see that answer. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, did you see that Nate Diaz and Habib Nurmagomedov got into a verbal spat yep. in the crowd at UFC 239? Of course they did. Almost like you would expect them to do. Yeah. If they were anywhere in close proximity to each other. Do you know why they got in a verbal spat with each other? Because they were in close proximity to each other? Because the UFC sat them down damn near right next to each other. How do you do that, man? Unless you wanted to have the cameras going for a verbal spat between Nate Diaz and Habib Nurmagomedov. Otherwise, I don't know how you in good conscience could look at the seating chart for UFC 239 and be like, no, this will be cool. Put Habib and his posse next to Nate Diaz and his posse. I mean, if you were inviting them both to your wedding... You and don't you, see them at the same table. No, no, you you don't even see them anywhere near each other. They're yeah. opposite sides of the ballroom. Here they are at the T-Mobile Arena rubbing elbows. Are you fucking kidding me? I almost felt like the UFC wanted to have a little friction here. Fucking kidding me. You fucking kidding me. Chad, you follow your guy Jeremy Botter on Twitter? Of course, you know I do. Former colleague of mine. 
You uh, you reading his uh, his stuff that he posts over there on wizard.com? You know I do. Then I suppose you read this post that he made about Dana White writing a book that was supposedly just for UFC employees. You know I did. And the title of said book was Don't Believe Anything You Read by Dana White. Yeah. And basically it's a whole thing where it's like a bunch of screenshots and stuff to prove, I guess, the point that the MMA media is entirely bullshit. Yeah. Now, the title of the book is Don't Believe Anything You Read. And yet. Which is an ironic name for a book. Because you want me to believe, presumably, just this title. But the title itself undercuts its own message. Don't believe anything you read. Including this. title of the book that you have to read. Anything that I read, then I also can't believe the title. But then I can go back to believing things, which then points me back to the title, which tells me not to believe anything. And my brain just collapses in on itself. Circular, man. Are you fucking kidding me? What, What was the goal here? What did he think? Like, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll write a book. I'll give it out to all the UFC employees, and then they will all agree with me that the media is bullshit and that the sole source of information that should be trusted when it comes to the UFC is I, Dana White, UFC president, who has been caught lying to people numerous times, including when I told everybody that the UFC wasn't up for sale, there was no impending sale, everything's fine, go back to your business, and then a couple days later we learned it's been sold. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Don't believe anything you read. Including this title. But then... No. Circular. It's just a very circular The thing. mind reels. A snake eating its own tail. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Judd, coming into UFC 239... What would you say former UFC women's bantamweight champion Holly Holm, or as she is sometimes known as Holly Holmes, was best known for? Probably kicking Ronda Rousey right in her dome. It's true. I would agree with that. Which makes it somehow even sadder that what happened to her here in what might end up being her last shot at a UFC title was she went in there against champion Amanda Nunes and got kicked right in her dome. Yeah. You could even say Amanda Nunes, Holly Holmes, Tolly Holmes. She did, kind of. She kicked her right in the fucking face as Holly Holmes was perched up on one foot for like a front kick attempt that never quite materialized. Amanda Nunes waited for her to come down, kicked her in the face, dropped her, then pounced on her with punches. Uh, a, I'm not going to say a quick stoppage or an early stoppage by Mark Goddard. He got in there at... Probably the perfect time, because as Holly Holm tried to get up to either protest or show that she was fine, she just about collapsed if yeah. Mark Goddard had not caught her in the air. That showed this was the right time to step in there. Amanda Nunes, still UFC champion in two divisions. This one really kind of just slammed the door on everybody, because it was the last person who had held either the bantamweight or featherweight titles who she had yet to beat. Now, anybody who has ever even momentarily laid their hands on one of those belts has had their ass kicked by Amanda Nunes. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was seemingly the performance that made it moot, untenable to even argue against Amanda Nunes, either as 
the greatest women's fighter of all time or not a star in some way. Even Dana White came to the press conference and said, Darren Ravel is full of shit, basically. Holly Holm is, or I'm sorry, Amanda Nunes is a, is a star. Uh, Holly Holm tried to pass the what the fuck test and it got caught up in sort of like a what the fuck. Yeah. She, she tried to protest the stoppage. It was like a what the fuck. No, you're right. Stumbled you're around right. enough yeah. to let us know that it was the right call. Uh, interesting question to me now, Ben. What do you do with Amanda Nunes, who is basically just destroying everybody? They're talking about a Cyborg Justino rematch, uh, maybe a rematch with uh, Valentina Shevchenko. But man, I don't know. It's I feel like you you are kind of in a tough spot with Amanda Nunes having cleaned out the bantamweight division and the featherweight division, basically being her Cyborg and whoever wins the most recent featherweight fight. Yeah. Yeah, or who else you can pillage from Invicta, basically. Yeah, I mean, the Cyborg rematch, I guess, is not a bad idea, just because Cyborg still retains a bit like a scary aura, and everybody knows Cyborg can do some damage. Everybody also knows she would love some revenge in that matchup, so I can see the argument for that. Uh, And it is tough to know where else you can take her at this point. I I don't know if I like the idea of Valentina Shevchenko, because while uh, Valentina Shevchenko did give her a close fight, uh, she's holding it down at flyweight. If I'm Valentina Shevchenko, why move up? Right. Why? I mean, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing the UFC would do at this moment with her. It seems like the UFC is more interested in trying to make Valentina Shevchenko a thing than putting her out there against Amanda Nunes right now. Yeah. And I guess I feel a little conflicted when I hear Dana White going off about, yeah, like, of course, Amanda Nunes is a star. That guy doesn't know he's talking. And it's like, while I agree that that guy was kind of full of shit on some of his assessments of like that it being a terrible thing for the UFC that Amanda Nunes won the title, it also doesn't seem like the UFC has really put itself out too much trying no. to promote Amanda Nunes. No, that's that's the storyline. Like that's the dominant storyline around Amanda Nunes, just because of the seeming lack of of promotion around her. As we've gotten to know her a little bit more, it seems like maybe she's not all that interested in being promoted as. Uh, you know, the the new, not that she would be the new Ronda Rousey, but like as the new standard bearer for women's MMA, it's not, it doesn't seem like she wants to be that huge star that does all of the media. Uh, but at the same time, as we've talked about almost ad nauseum on the show, it seems like she could be a powerful force for the UFC to appeal to various demographics that the UFC has not traditionally appealed to. And so I think it's kind of a shame that that the company hasn't done that and that now we've gotten to the point where she has beaten everyone around and you know we're talking about the best option being a rematch with Cyborg Justino and frankly I don't know uh what she could do more impressively than she did the first time yeah. which all which kind of makes it seem like a uh I'm sure she would get paid well but just sheerly athletically athletically it makes it seem like a uh a hard situation for Amanda Nunez because I don't know what you do that you didn't do the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of ways, I guess, where any fight with Cyborg can go bad for absolutely anybody. But it's true. I mean, when you see Amanda Nunez at these like press conferences and stuff and you're like, she's super affable. She comes across as just very likable down to earth, even though she is like, there is nobody else in the conversation. I think as a greatest of all time in any aspect of MMA, who seems as down to earth as Amanda Nunes does, right. or kind of like unaffected by it, right? Yeah, and yeah, and especially the UFC has maybe gone in a little more with promoting, like, okay, yeah, 
she's a UFC champion and her girlfriend's also a UFC fighter and they have like this adorable dynamic and everything and it's great. And maybe that is some hope because we talked before about how the UFC, when it comes to female fighters, seem to only know one way to promote them and she doesn't quite fit into that mold. But yeah, now you do run into a situation where it's just like she's the one champ champ who's being allowed to kind of do that. Yeah. And yet it also seems like you're already kind of out of great ideas. Yeah, Jermaine Durand to me and Aspen Ladder about to do do a fight, right? That's the uh, that's, that's coming up weekend. next weekend. This weekend in Sacramento. So if you you know we if you get a, a dis- definitive winner there, I guess it gives you at least one option for a featherweight title defense. Although we already went round and round with Jermaine Durand to me once, and it didn't seem like it worked out all that great. Uh, Aspen Ladd seems to be a personality that the UFC is m- minorly hyped over. So you get her into a situation where she could fight for the title. Maybe that's something that you do. But at the same time, yeah, it does seem like Amanda Nunes has just been too damn dominant almost for her own good because we've kind of talked our way in circles here about what she's going to do next. Well, yeah, I mean, the Aspen Ladd possibility is an interesting one because here you, she's main eventing a card here in essentially her hometown or in like her hometown region. Like it's in Sacramento. She's undefeated, 9-0. Or 8-0 as a professional right now, right? Uh, 24 years old. She goes in there and she beats Jermaine Durandamy, who is, you know, a pretty good step up in competition at this point and, like, physically presents some challenges that have given other people problems just because of her size and that division. So if she goes in there and she beats Jermaine Durandamy, and now she's 9-0 as a pro but still very young and not super experienced, and then you, you're going to say what? Okay, up next is a title shot against Amanda Nunes because we don't have any better ideas because that's kind of scary a little bit to think about. Yeah, and it's like one of those John Jones type situations where if you are Amanda Nunes, you probably have no qualms with picking off these young contenders yeah, before they're let ready. Me, let me fight them now as opposed to two years from now. Let's talk a little bit about Holly Holm before we move on to round three. She's 37 years old at this point. She will probably be 38 years old before she fights again. I believe her birthday is in October. She's two and five in her last seven fights, although the competition has been about as stiff as it can be uh, in the women's bantam and women's featherweight divisions. Uh, we heard a lot about how she had been through all this personal turmoil over the last year or so and, and had emerged from it and was felt like she was kind of ready to come back and, and handle some unfinished business after what was a shorter-than-expected title reign back in 2015-2016. She let a lot of the momentum and a lot of the spoils from that Ronda Rousey head kick knockout at UFC 193 slip through her fingers by losing three in a row uh, between 2016 and 2017. And yet, you know, she goes out there and probably against the the, the greatest of all time, against a... Uh, you know, the toughest matchup for almost anybody in any of these divisions. We thought it might be a more advantageous matchup for Holly Holm than it, than it turned out to be. This seems like a tough loss for her, particularly happening the way it did. And as you said, like maybe her last opportunity to break through and really be that champion that we thought she might be when she came into the UFC as an undefeated prospect uh, all those years ago. Yeah, I had somebody ask in the MMA mailbag uh, on The Athletic this week, basically, about did we get too hyped about Holly Holm? Because when you look at it now, and you look at it on paper, she's lost five of her last seven, yeah. which doesn't sound great. And yet, the thing I think you have to remember, for one, is, yeah, that first, that 10-0 and run that culminated with her knocking out Ronda Rousey to win the title. I, you just can't really argue with that. And if you do look at these five fights that she's lost, it was... To, when she lost the title to Misha Tate, who she was beating yeah. soundly right up until she let her 
get the takedown at the end and get on her back. She would have won. She would have won if she hadn't lost. Had she not lost. Uh, And then she lost a decision to Valentina Shevchenko, who we've seen what she's gone on to do. Lost that decision to Jermaine Durandamy, which was a questionable decision to begin with. And she got hit after the bell a few times and, you know, fine. Uh, Then she beats Betchkohea. Head kick knocks out her. Loses to Chris Cyborg. Loses the decision to Chris Cyborg, which, frankly, is just fucking respectable. Yeah, up to that point, probably the best we'd seen anybody do. Yeah. Uh, beats Megan Anderson, who before that was thought of as like the heir apparent to be the next person to really give Cyborg a, a serious challenge, and then loses TKO to Amanda Nunes, the greatest of all time. Yeah. It's not bad, is what I'm saying. Plus, this is like the, her second combat sports career. This Everything that's happened in MMA. Yeah, she almost been, her third, because she was like boxing and kickboxing. She had an entire boxing career before any of this. So, And now she's in her late 30s, and if it ends here... It's still a really good run. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we got too hyped about her. Like, uh, she's one of the more impressive athletes in all of women's mixed martial arts. You know, she's got that boxing and kickboxing background. She won the damn title. She knocked out Ronda Rousey. It's hard to say that, you know, she didn't live up to expectations. I don't think her title reign went exactly like we thought it might. But at the same time, she's always been kind of a frustrating character, like kind of a frustrating fighter in that just... Uh, you know, just looking at her, you feel like she could go out there and wreck anybody. And then you see her lose a couple of those fights where uh, it looked, it felt from the outside looking in, like she kind of let them slip through her fingers. Like she could have won those fights. Things might've been a lot more impressive resume wise if she hadn't done that. But at the same time, like I feel like it's kind of unfair to say that we got too hyped about her. I think we got exactly the right amount of hyped about her. And then she lived up to it, just did not, Care, live up to the expe- expectations as champion yeah. that we could have had. It's hard to say you got too hyped about anybody when they become the champion. Yeah. Because that's as good as you can do. That is. That is actually as good as you can do as becoming the champion. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, with apologies to John Jones and apologies to Amanda Nunes, I think you can argue that the breakout star from UFC 239 was Jorge Masvidal. Yeah. He goes out there, knocks out Ben Askren in five seconds, the fastest knockout in UFC history. And really, you got a, a lot for the time that it took the referee to get there and stop the fight. If you were, if this, if, if, this was uh, judo or whatever, and the thing ended instantaneously upon knockout or throw. Like, this knockout took about two seconds. Yeah, I think I saw Journalist of the Year Suzanne Davis timing it on uh, a stopwatch and saying, from the moment Jason Herzog says fight to the moment when Ben Askren is clearly unconscious, it's about two and a half seconds. So, five seconds just allotting for the time it takes the referee to stop the fight, during which Jorge Masvidal got the opportunity to launch a couple of undefended strikes against super necessary Ben Askren. Uh, let's talk first about the flying knee and then we can talk about George Masvidal as a an emerging character I guess you could say uh, in the, the landscape of this division the flying knee was so impressive not just because he landed it and knocked Ben Askren out but because of the stuff that we found out afterward about how he had been drilling that flying knee about how American top team and Jorge Masvidal 
theorized that Ben Askren would probably charge across the cage and shoot immediately for a takedown. Uh, and then in the execution, like obviously they've released the videos of him drilling it and practicing it 48 hours or so before the fight. The execution of it was so well done. You and I talked about this last night uh, after we had biked out to the brewery. George, Jorge Masvidal does this thing where like he takes a couple of shuffle steps to the side, both to camouflage his true intentions and also to let Ben Askren advance. Right. To let him come across the middle of the cage. And then by the time we get into the all out sprint that led to the flying knee, it just left Ben Askren with a lot less time to react. Right. Yeah. And that's the advantage of doing it that way. Cause if you just, if you tell yourself, my plan is to sprint across there and flying knee him in the face. If you just start sprinting as soon as the guy says fight, then you have to run basically all the way across the cage, by which time he has at least a little bit longer to think about it. Because the thing you want to do there, and it's very simple to avoid that, is just circle off of that line on which he's charging. And it's really easy. Then you've killed his momentum, and he has to kind of reset and turn his body to find you again. If you just do that, he can't stay in a dead sprint and also follow you as you angle off. So... He, he purposely delays a little bit, knowing that Ben Askren's thing is going to be trying to get out there into the space and get his own back off the fence as quickly as possible. He's going to come straight across. And then if you have three steps or so into that sprint, that's enough time to build up momentum to where the knee is going to be devastating if it lands. But also too short a time span for him to really even think about what's happening. He's just going to go for whatever his instinct is. And you know what his instinct is. He's going to drop down into the takedown. As yeah. soon as somebody comes at Ben Akron, it's like wrestler guy stuff just kicks in. And they, they had him well scouted. They had a great plan to take advantage of it. And most importantly, had the balls to just go out there and try it. Right. Because a lot of people could be like, hey, I know what a wrestler would be vulnerable to. But to tell yourself... Especially in a fight where everybody else is thinking, you have to avoid the takedown. Like, you just can't get taken down against this guy. And you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to go try this thing that is a high-risk, high-reward maneuver, which could very easily end with me on my back. And I've essentially given up the takedown at the very beginning of the first round. And then everybody would be like, you idiot. Why would you do that? Why would you make it easy for him? You know, and yet he pulls it off and he's a genius. Yeah. It's strange to think about Jorge Masvidal after 16 years and 47 fights in Strike Force and the UFC and Bellator and World Victory Road. Remember that place? Yep. Bodog. Jorge Masvidal has been around for a long time. He's been everywhere. He's done almost everything. And yet, here we are, reckoning with him as sort of like the emergent star from UFC 239. It's a weird place to be, but I think that is legitimately the place that we are, not only because of the impressive knockout and the fastest KO in UFC history, but also because Masvidal really put on like a complete performance at UFC 239, including the post-fight press conference. Yes. Where he went and just dropped dime after dime after dime while on the podium to almost every question that was asked of him. And like... Especially considering that one of the things about Jorge Masvidal is that you know he's given it to you straight at all times. Yes. Not acting, not putting on any airs, not coming with any, uh, you know, Ben Askren or Colby Covington style prepared material. Mm -hmm. Very impressive to see him kind of be this charismatic, uh, cutthroat, cold-blooded MMA star in and around UFC 239. Yeah, I mean... 
Okay, let's let's talk about though his response first of all to the questions like were those extra two punches necessary? And he just replied they were super necessary. And yet he's also I like he he kind of gives a smirking answer like I thought he might get up. Like, no, you didn't. No, you did not think that he was going to get up. But also, you know, being like, hey, they tell me to go until the ref stops me. So that's what I was doing. Also, though, yeah, I did think that he deserved to be punished extra for all this shit that he talks. And I saw people going kind of both ways on it. For me, I don't know. It's hard for me to be like, I want you to deliver this devastating violence, but I also want you to pull back in this heightened moment. Like that seems like a lot to ask. of Yeah. People. Yeah. Like, especially since the, unfortunately the hard reality of it is that you got to go until the referee pulls you off. And like we said, there was a couple of seconds there where it took Jason Herzog to get over and, and actually do the stoppage. Uh, I understand anyone's complaints with that. Cause like clearly we had a walk off KO situation here if Masvidal had wanted to he could have turned around and walked away but at the same time like I don't think you can like fault the guy too much for continuing to do what he did until he was declared the winner like if he had continued to strike Ben Askren after the stoppage then I think you could look at it and be like that's dirty pool in some way uh in this way I think he just you know did exactly what he was feeling to the point where it would no longer have been appropriate and then he sort of stopped I understand if people were turned off by it but like as Jorge Masvidal would say, that's just sort of like the game that we're in. Yes. And like I thought he made an interesting point at the post-fight press conference, frankly, where he was kind of like, so somebody can say whatever they want. Like you basically there's no rules in the lead up to the fight. But then afterwards, we're supposed to adhere to this strict code of conduct like that does not that does not go well with with my personal worldview, uh, which I think is is an interesting thing to think about. We also got to see this sort of clash of styles here between Ben Askren and Jorge Masvidal, not just stylistically in terms of how they were going to fight in the cage, but stylistically in terms of what kind of dudes these guys are. Like uh, in the way, in the same way that we found out Habib Nurmagomedov did not play in his matchup with Conor McGregor, I think we found out, if we didn't know before, that Jorge Masvidal is not going to do the theatrics here. He is not going to uh, try to sell a fight as a, a pitched blood feud and then afterwards kind of hug and and let everybody know that it was showbiz like no, you're still gonna have to deal with him at whole foods yeah he's gonna slap you if he sees you at whole foods which is as i said unnecessary you, you want to be able to go to whole foods in peace yeah everyone needs to go there and get their uh their tasty yet nutritious foods without having to worry about physical violence well I did like the when he was saying when like asked about hey should you get the next title shot that kind of thing and he was like look if you want somebody who shows up to the press conference on time and says all and does all the Instagram stuff and does all that stuff, and then hey, I guess I'm not that guy. But if you want somebody who brings the violence, that's the guy I am. Which really, in a kind of Nick Diaz fashion, positioning himself as the the anti-hero of the anti-bullshit, you know, that if that's what he is gonna pitch himself as. I think, A, he has the resume and the chops to back it up. And B, I feel like a lot of people are ready for that. A lot of people are feeling like, okay, let me get off of this train where it's just whoever has the most recent beef, whoever talks it up the most, and whoever can sell the drama of it. And let's get to like the guy who is the best or scariest fighter. That's the guy I want to see. I feel like now is a good time to be making that play. A lot of people were clearly waiting for Ben Askren to get knocked out so that they could have 
fun at his expense in and around social media and everywhere else. I think to his credit, it seems like he is taking it very, very well. I don't know if you saw any of the stuff that yeah. he did on the uh, Ariel Helwani ESPN show today, but uh, he seemed like he was handling it with with as much uh, panache as you possibly could, essentially saying like, I had that coming to me in many ways. Like I wanted to antagonize Jorge Masvidal as much as I could, both to get him to take the fight and then to sort of sell the fight. And so, like, yeah, man, I probably deserved a couple extra strikes after the after the knockout. Well, and and probably deserved some of the meme love that he was getting afterwards too, where people are going to be having a whole lot of fun at your expense. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's the the best way you can react to that. People were asking me in the mailbag, basically, like. Is this Ben Askren getting exposed? Can he go back to being the same Ben Askren after this? And it's like, I don't know what a five-second fight can really tell us. Because it's like, the guy had you well scouted, and he pulled off a great move. He he, he knew what you were going to do, and he pounced on it in a way that few people are going to be able to do. I don't know if it told us anything new about Ben Askren. Right. If anything, I think you come away being like, I guess I better not tele- uh, telegraph my shit quite so much. Yeah. Like, maybe I do have to... Uh, you know, throw a couple of punches or something. I do wonder a little bit about like, how do you put mentally the pieces back together for Ben Askren? Cause something like that happens. That was a bad knockout. You yeah. saw him being helped out of there. And then he has to find a way to what, go back to that same swaggering character that he's been in the public eye for a long time. And you know, there's going to be a part of him that when he goes out for whatever his next fight is, that's going, okay, you can't get knocked out again. Like you can't have some shit like this happen to you again, because yeah. then you know, you'll really be buried under an avalanche of shit. You have to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's that can be a tough way to go back into a fight. I agree, yeah. I think that, like, Ben Askren, for all of his sort of, like, internet trollish behavior, is also something of a truth teller, though, I think, also. Like, I could easily see him at least handling media next time around by saying, look, man, I got knocked out the last time. I got my ass kicked super bad, so, like, this is important. I need to do well in this one. How he handles it internally, I think... Uh, is anyone's best guess. Although, you know, these guys that come from those, these lengthy amateur wrestling backgrounds seem to have the mental fortitude to put themselves back together after a tough loss. Yeah. He's, so he's been through a competition or two before. Right. I'm not necessarily all that worried about it. In terms of what next for Jorge Masvidal, though, Ben, do you feel like he jumped the line now? Is he the number one contender for Kamaru Usman? Because we still have this situation at 170 pounds where Usman hasn't really been ready to fight. We've got Colby Covington booked against Robbie Lawler a little bit later this year. You would think that the winner of that fight would be the presumptive number one contender, but it's hard not to like the idea of a Jorge Masvidal, Kamaru Usman, welterweight title fight. And that, frankly, could put uh, Masvidal and Covington, who are bros and training partners at ATT, in kind of an awkward situation if... Uh, Colby Covington beats Robbie Lawler, but who would you like to see, I guess, fight Usman next, Masvidal or the Lawler-Covington winner? Well, if we were going to do the thing that made the most sense, I think it would have been to do Colby Covington versus Kamaru Usman, just because right. Colby Covington had the interim title, and Kamaru Usman now is the you know actual champion, so it makes sense to just figure that whole situation out, because Colby Covington hasn't lost, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you just forget him and move him into some other contender fight. What is he still trying to prove after winning the interim title? That doesn't make sense to me. So I would have said, let's go ahead and do that. But since we're clearly not going to do that. Yeah, that ship has left the harbor. Since we we already booked him against somebody else. I say in the meantime, 
if everybody is healthy and it doesn't look like Jorge Masvidal injured himself in five seconds of action. Unless he has a tooth stuck in his knee. That's about <laughs> the only thing that could have happened. Uh, then go ahead and book that fight. Because, shit, I'd watch that. Jorge Masvidal clearly having himself a moment right now. Plus, if you are going to tell us, all right, Kamaru Usman is the scary wrestler who is at the top of the division. Well, we just saw that Jorge Masvidal figured out a way to deal with a scary wrestler. Like a dominating wrestler. So, let's see that one. I, I wouldn't... I, it's almost no way you could fuck this up. Yeah. I guess Jorge Masvidal could have separated his shoulder falling down doing an impression of Ben Askren being knocked out. Which, That's the other way he could have got see, hurt. For one thing, I think we have to pause and appreciate that it was actually a good impression. Like, it was spot on. Yeah. And he did it right afterwards. Like he delivered on a deadline there. And he, he had to nail it right there in the moment he did. Yeah, I'd like to see his Nixon. <laughs> Masvidal, do Richard Nixon. <laughs> Johnny Carson now. Do Carson. All right, Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Chad, are you familiar with a, uh, a website by the name of RottenTomatoes.com? I have heard of it, yeah. Okay, so the way they do it is use audience scores and critic scores and really kind of arrive at like a, a percentage to tell you how good a movie is. Uh, Roadhouse, 1989. You know what that did on uh, the tomato meter? I know what it has done on my tomato meter. 38%. 110%. Point break. 1991. You know what that does on tomato meter? 68%. So it's solid D. Did, do you want me to do, read the Roadhouse one again? I just like that the thing you are fixated on as I'm these two... I'm just saying. As these two movies go head to head, the thing that you are fixated on is which one is a better movie. And the fact like, that's that you the are thing not... that fucking matters when you're talking about Roadhouse and Point Break. Which one of these is the better film? The and I'm glad you said that. Art so House I can point cinema. Out, maybe your inability to ask yourself that question is why you have yet to win one of these fan voting. Things. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Also, the tagline on the poster for Roadhouse: "It's last call." Dot dot dot. For action. Hell yeah. <laughs> now I don't know how people couldn't vote for it. What's your just saying? Ben, your guy Rumble Johnson. Okay. Retired from MMA, but showed up Sunday night to appear at Submission Underground in a submission wrestling match against Australian submission superstar Craig Jones, who, in a full disclosure, is not a person I've ever heard of before. Okay. Two things. Number one, this match went 50 seconds, 47 seconds before Jones won via heel hook over Rumble Johnson, who's not necessarily, in fairness, known as a submission grappler, more of a knockout artist. Said he just came to Submission Underground to have a few yucks, uh, <laughs> assumedly to make a few dollars. Did he say yucks? Was that his word or yours? He said he just did it for fun. Okay. Have some laughs. Second thing. Your boy Rumble Johnson, former welterweight fighter, tipped the scales at 278.4 pounds. Wow. A full 108 pounds <laughs> north of where he once was a competitive MMA 278 fighter. 278 pounds? You know what? He wears it well. He's not he's he's definitely gained some face weight, but he's not he doesn't look like a fat man. He looks like a, a stout defensive lineman almost. You're saying that maybe Rumble Johnson knows where they keep the weights? He definitely knows. I'm just saying. And if you put your yoga mat in front of those weights, he will flip the fuck out. Rumble Johnson coming back at heavyweight, dot, dot, dot. Oh, I'm just saying, why'd you just say that? I just got to call him like I see him. Oh, damn it. That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. 
We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at this fight night event between Jermaine Durandamy and Aspen Ladd. There's actually a lot of MMA on this week. You got there PFL is. on Thursday. That's right. Bellator on Friday. Bellator on Friday. And you got this UFC fight night on Saturday. So suffice to say, we'll have a lot to talk about on Monday when we return for the co-main event proper. Don't forget, Wednesday live chat. I'm going to have the Nighthawk set up. So we'll be just, we'll be flying high with the Nighthawk. I'm going to hold you to that. For the live chat. First thing I do when I come through the door on Wednesday is I'm going to check for the Nighthawk. Couple days left before voting wraps up for the next movie club. As you know, uh, those of you that want to watch a finely crafted uh, high concept art film can go over and vote for Point Break. Everybody else that just wants to have a good fucking time can go vote for Roadhouse. And then we'll be back Friday with the Power Hour before we do it all again next week. If you're interested, patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You're telling me the first time you saw Point Break, you came away going, wow, that was a high concept art. I don't even remember anything. You know why? Because it's not memorable. Maybe that's why you Roadhouse? need to watch it again. Roadhouse? Fucking memorable. The last line in Roadhouse is a polar bear fell on me. You want to talk about high art? Fucking spoiler alert, man. And, and fine craftsmanship. Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than Roadhouse. Forged like a fine table that you would sit Next at you're gonna to host a banquet. Rosebud is the sled? Shit, come on, man.